Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Have you ever looked around and noticed the extreme variation in coloration of some plant species? It's a really interesting topic because some species are far more variable than others. Well, today we're going to explore that in more detail to look at some of the possible explanations for this variation and how sometimes things like flower color variation can actually be linked to climate change. Joining us to talk about this is Clemson University PhD student Sierra Sullivan. Sierra is studying some of my favorite plants in the world, members of the genus Hexastylus, and so much more. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer because there's a ton of food for thought in here. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Sierra Sullivan. I hope you enjoy. All right, Sierra Sullivan, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to learn about your work today. But first, let's tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Oh, hello, everyone. My name is Sierra Sullivan. I am a graduate student at Clemson University in South Carolina. And so I like to, obviously, I'm here, study plants. <laughs> so, <laughs> Specifically, what interests me the most is looking at color diversity in plants, whether it be in the flowers or in the leaves. I like to know how we have this diversity, like, for instance, within just one species. Hmm. I want to know, like, how is that maintained? Just, you know, to put it basically, why? Why does this species have different forms, but this other guy doesn't? Does it serve a purpose? Is it beneficial? Just why? <laughs> <laughs> Marks of good scientific curiosity, but I think everyone listening that spent any time around flowers knows that there is, even within a species, a lot of variability. But before we get mm -hmm. to sort of where you fit in with your research into that, what brought you to plants in the first place? I mean, was this something you were always interested in, or did you kind of have like an evolutionary development background and plants were more of a convenient system, or was this just all happenstance? <laughs> So definitely as a kid, I always liked science and I can tell I did like the plant section of science, you know, take a little seeds, grow some on the windowsill, <laughs> grow some in the classroom closet, see what happens, um, helping my mom in the garden. So it was always there, but it wasn't until like my second year of undergrad with my plant professor that I realized when she asked me to help her do some research, I was like, wait. I actually like this. I had a really an epiphany moment, like on the side of a road, oh. like before we like went, it was like a dirt road before we like went into one of our plots. I was like, whoa, this is actually amazing. I think I've found something I like doing, wow. which is plant research. So it's kind of like an epiphany that was always there. Wow, that's exciting. It's nice to be able to sort of pinpoint the moment when at least it clicked. 
But it's also great to know that you have a background of at least paying attention to plants in some way, growing them. And it's also really nice to hear for anyone that does like teaching or interacting with young minds that, uh, you know, those early days of like, let's germinate a seed and watch it grow for a week or two and then write down some stuff like those can make a huge impact in someone's life. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really fun. And so what brought you? I mean, obviously, there are so many ways to get involved in plant research. I mean, was the uh, color aspect sort of what you fell into with this lab or is it something you kind of found along the way and decided to pursue uh, you know more seriously it was along the way so also during undergrad my undergrad mentor dr janet steven she suggested that i do an ru which is a research for undergraduates um, a little internship you do with nsf and so when I got into that, I was working with Dr. Laura Galloway and my now grad mentor, Dr. Matthew Koski, looking at pollen color variation, actually, oh. and the American bellflower. So through doing that study and that internship, I was like, this is really cool. So when <laughs> I became um, Dr. Koski's grad student, it was kind of like, I know will buy because I've worked <laughs> with you on a topic I, I like, so... Well, that's interesting. You mentioned pollen color, and we've talked about this a long time ago on the podcast. And to me, it's one of those things that you kind of see on the landscape, you know, especially if you're gardening and growing flowers. But I, for one, have never really stopped to think about it from a scientific perspective. Like, oh, there's pigments there. There might be selection. There might be, as you kind of hinted at, no selection. And it's just sort of whatever works, works. Uh, and so that makes plants a really interesting system because it's not just like hair color, skin color, fur color, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. It's it's a lot of different parts doing a lot of different things for the organism. Definitely. I mean, I guess even with that too, sure, flowers are different. I mean, maybe if I really paid attention, it's like about polyclers of the other. But again, <laughs> it was kind of like when someone points out like, whoa, wait a minute, that's weird. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. yeah. And I would imagine, you know, that realization also comes with, especially from as, as a scientist going, OK, where do we start digging into the literature on this? And and yeah. I would assume now this is, again, not my field, but I would assume that it is a broad spectrum of potential thought ideas, hypotheses and tests and even just perspectives on what you're aiming to study in, in variation in color. Right. I mean, it's a big field. Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to tackle I mean you have like your phylogenetics you can do if you like to make trees that's not really me but I I, I sometimes you got to do it your evolution Mary <laughs> yeah it's, I just can't grasp it's hard to stick in my head yeah. you know ecology ecophysiology which I'm getting more into now hmm. there's you know, it's kind of like that, I forget what it's called, but that saying about the elephant and a bunch of blind people around, there's a bunch of different ways to tackle something to get at the same question. So yeah, definitely a huge field. Yeah. And so it also brings up these ideas of, okay, what's going on with all of this variation? And the simple answer for me has always been, oh, it's pollinators. Of course, it's, it's about <laughs> the flower and, you know, even organs within the flower. All that variation is, is sort of just all aimed at attracting whoever that pollinator or pollinators might be. But what I'm learning from research such as yours and others is that uh, there are a lot of other environmental factors that can kind of be mushed into there. Obviously, pollination is important, but mm-hmm. it's it's a whole world out there. And, and who knows what 
is exactly tugging on those strings. So let's go a little bit beyond flower color. What other sort of aspects of the environment could potentially influence before we even talk about what you're finding? Yeah, so definitely the non-living things in the environment can are abiotic. So what's going on in the soil can affect things like moisture, drought, the type of elements are in there. Like, I don't know if there's a runoff or something happening that could (laughs) mess with things. The climate, so is it raining? Is it really hot? Did you just have like a freak cold period? That can affect it. Um, UV radiation. So definitely the non-living things, in addition to the living things we normally think about, can also affect color. Wow. And just as, you know, the variety of influences are there, I would assume also that there's a variety of pigments and ways to arrive at different variations in color. I mean, I always hear this talk about blue flowers and it's so hard to communicate this, but people are like, there's no, there's very few actual blue flowers out there. It's like doing what we used to do with like watercolors as kids, just mixing and matching till you get something else. Usually to me, it was just like a blob of no color at some point, but (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of ways to end up with color, right? There is, like, I was just talking to someone at, like, a workshop about the same thing in butterflies, because I, I, with my dissertation research, um, it's with color, too, and it's how that it can be not a pigment difference, but structural on the cellular level, where it's just light refracting, and so to our eyes, it looks a certain color, I'm just like, that's insane. (laughs) It's really insane. Yeah, that is wild, and I, off the top of my head, do you know of any like flowers at least or or leaves like there's got to be some of that structural color elements in in plants as well that don't even have anything to do with pigmentation yeah so my dissertation about something called leaf variegation which is when leaves have a color that is not green in some type of pattern or it's like a different shade of green because of mutations and you have the pigment type which you would think oh it's just you know lack of chlorophyll but then like we were just saying there's a structural type where there's more space between the epidermis and the mesosphere where you have your chlorophyll happening and that causes huh. like a white pigment to rise so in the leaves i know flowers maybe and i don't know but fair enough (laughs) yeah variegation is a topic unto itself i mean talk about popularity these days i think variegation has gotten itself up there in the public sector in a big way because of plant breeding house plants and all that but Mm -hmm. um you know i always have to put this caveat i really like seeing it in nature i'm not necessarily like all about getting an all pink leaf or an all white leaf on on an arum but seeing what's going on in nature to me that's really exciting because Now, to be fair, it could be happenstance, it could be accidental, but there's got to be some sort of functional component that there's selection on that because, you know, not every group has it and some do it to a really predictable but kind of beautiful fractal degree. Exactly. That what you said is exactly the question of my dissertation (laughs) research. Like in nature, like we see it, you can induce it with arborist selection but it's happening in nature Mm. how and why i mean even like you said with house plants a lot of house plants are tropical species so it is a lot common Mm. in those and in some temperate species as well so again why (laughs) why does it keep showing up there wow so that's a big question and obviously there's probably a lot of different answers but you mentioned sort of tropical versus you know what we see in the temperate zone at least where you and i are located is there sort of a latitudinal 
patterning in, in sort of the appearance and, and variation in, in variegation, or is that something we don't really have a grasp on at this point? It's something we don't really have a grasp on, but definitely thinking about, I mean, dissertation, I'm going to tackle everything. I'm going to get like a little piece of the pie. Like, <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of the hypotheses are the big slugs are about herbivores, you know, mm. like if I can say right, a post-Semitism, like the coloring. <laughs> I think that was good. Coloring. <laughs> yeah exactly just like power through (laughs) yeah that and then there's the abiotic hypothesis so temporal spatial heterogeneity in climate maybe that's leading to it Mm. maybe it's better in high light or low light for some species and then of course there's the neutral hypothesis it's that the traits is kind of coasting it may be going to fixation in some populations and not it's not under the strong selection. A lot of hypotheses that still need to be experimented, investigated. Yeah, yeah. And I'm already like, I feel for you in the grad student position here going like, I'm, I'm literally just carving out my piece of this puzzle. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I'll see what there is to see with this five years I have. <laughs> So as someone in sort of the, the thick of it right now, I have to ask from, from more of like a, a public persona perspective is when you're out, like maybe on a flight or, you know, when we used to be able to do that more often, interact with other humans, uh, person to person that maybe aren't in the sciences and don't think about these hypotheses every day has sort of the rise in houseplants and variegation. When you start to kind of peel away at what you do, do people get like super excited more nowadays about the sort of science and obviously have a million questions for you. But, um, you know, have you seen like the houseplant sort of craze impact the public perception, not necessarily the scientific perception of what you're doing? Yeah. So definitely when I, you know, share just something on like my Facebook or something like that with friends and family, people have houseplants. So like, oh, I know what you're talking about. (laughs) You can have them. One of my friends' mom be like, hey, do you know Wade that I can like have this variegated monstera without paying the crazy money? And I'm like, <laughs> not really. I, I don't have the genetic tools to induce that for you for like low cost, but <laughs> we'll get there maybe one day. Right. But yeah. Because yeah, it's so relatable. Definitely. There is interest when you break it down and like relate it to someone on sign. It's like, hey, you have houseplants. Yeah. You like variegated houseplants? Yeah. Do you want, do you know that it's common in nature? Really? How? Hmm. That's what I want to know. Let's talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's great inroads into some like very nice teachable moments that people are actually, you know, engaging themselves in instead of just, you know, those memes of like, I'm just going to barrage you with whatever I want to talk about and you're going (laughs) to run away. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's fun. And you mentioned sort of the possibility of neutral selection, which kind of still to this day blows my mind. And it's something my friend Steve in the Field Guides podcast is always saying is like natural selection is the only non-random process in evolution. Sometimes it really can be random. And so, I mean, obviously we do not need to cover this in detail, but there is a possibility in evolution that something could just arise. And if it doesn't harm, it may not benefit to any great degree. It could just get carried along throughout the lineage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if there's stuff like with humans. I don't study humans, sure, but yeah. like, yeah, I just, well, I guess maybe non-cancerous like moles, mm. they're just there. I have them because my parents have them and right. i'm sure they have them maybe it's example of like just coasting <laughs> not doing anything <laughs> not helping not hurting 
Huh. Wow. It's it, there's so many cool things to think about in evolution, and that's why I really enjoy it as sort of a I get to dip my toe in the water every once in a while. But <laughs> obviously, peeling apart the mechanisms and trying to understand it from a scientific perspective is a whole new ball game. And so, in the context of at least variegation and where you are trying to carve out your piece of the puzzle, what kind of questions are you most interested in with your current research, or are you still kind of fleshing those things out? So, with my current research. Definitely want to look at or start looking at the functionality, possible functionality of variegation in this native herb I have. Um, it's called Hexasilus heterophylla, or commonly um, just bearable heart leaf, ginger Yay. leaf. You know, I, you guess. Yes, <laughs> I just saw this species flowering for the first time this spring, and it instantly jumped to my, like my favorite hexastylus. So They're I, so yes. weird. Yes, <laughs> that's what I'm working with. Ah. Yeah, because it has the two types. Literally, that's why it's named what it is. Some are variegated, and some are not. Wow. And then even within the variegated ones, the amount of discoloration is variable i'd say like some are like as low as five percent of the leaf is rigged whereas some have been like almost 60 percent like oh, a lot of the leaf has that light green so it's going on there because <laughs> i mean other variegated things that i've seen it's kind of stable like if it's like a variegated pattern just dots i mean the dots are usually the same size but yeah mm. this one because the nice pattern because it's not heart shape it's really interesting to see that so just testing my hypotheses, is it herbivory? Does it help there? Is it because of climate, which would help see if there's maybe a latitudinal pattern mm. thinking about the tropical species? And then I have not really seen any published work that's linking variegation to reproduction. So, Ooh. you know, if you have the pigment type and you have this chlorophyll, it reasons one might think does that affect photosynthesis and if it does significantly that could affect you know research allegation to like how many flowers are produced or seed set so that's another big thing to look at because i don't really usually see that in studies the ones where they do find photosynthesis is impacting the species what about reproduction what is is that the same with its green counterpart so huh those are really interesting questions and a great sort of like downstream effect of really what this pigment could be doing. It could be pressured in one direction by, like you said, herbivores or something like that. But then also, you know, okay, maybe these don't get eaten, but they also don't reproduce as well. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you also have this herb that's like living in the shaded understory of some of the most dense canopy areas. I mean, to be fair, there's probably variation in habitat type for the species, but wherever I've seen it, it's like... Oh, cool. That's a really thick rhododendron canopy you got there. <laughs> yes, those and the laurels, the laurel Ugh. forest I've been in. I mean, it's nice and shady, but yeah, yeah, they're usually in shaded parts. There's some state parks where there's a part where it's not as shady because I've been in the winter and in the summer where it's, you know, all full again and like... <laughs> It's funny because, like, going back during the season, I was like, whoa, wait, is this her plot? Because it just looks completely <laughs> different because it's so shady. I'm like, is this, was this where we were a couple months ago? <laughs> the GPS says it's here, but I'm not really believing it. Yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't see. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and yeah, I mean, having been in those habitats, how many times have you found yourself just like crawling through tangled stems of rhododendron and laurel, just being like, oh, why yeah. am I doing this? 
That and also, um, what is it? Greenbrier, the pokey things. I've had some scratches from those. So usually when we see like a big tangle, it's like, let's go up the trail. (laughs) I don't, but yeah, definitely some climbing, going through branches and trees, but it's it's good i mean i could be in a very deserty situation but yeah. i'm not but yeah. <laughs> in this summer heat with climate change <laughs> very true very true <laughs> having worked in the mountains uh yeah you feel for your your, your colleagues in the lowland areas especially yeah. the farther south you go you're like oh yeah that is i'll take yeah. i'll take mountain shade i'll, I'll crawl <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh that's fun and to be fair, I I did not like get really up close and look at the the variegation patterns. It was, you know, photograph. Oh, my God, look at those flowers. This is such a weird plant. I love this whole genus. But you mentioned there's different ways to arrive at variegation. What is it in this species? Is it the air spaces or lack of any pigmentation or is it an actual like lack of chlorophyll? What's causing it in this one? So from some initial microscopy I've done, it does look like there could be pigment-related lack of chlorophyll. So looking at it, it does look like the um, plain morph is more of a darker green. Mm. But also the palisade cells, which is where chloroplasts are mostly housed, in the variegated plants, they look different. Like Mm. they're not the normal, you think, rectangular, closely packed shape. They're more irregular. So this one might have structure and pigment because actually the two types aren't mutually exclusive. You can have both pigment related and structure related variegation. So initial thoughts could be both. We'll look further. (laughs) Sure. Sure. That's pretty fascinating in and of itself that there is like some serious physiological like changes to the plant to even achieve this color variation. And you mentioned that it can affect photosynthesis. And this is why I I always feel for people that are like, I bought this all white Hoya cutting. Is it ever going to take off? And you're like, I'm so sorry, but no. There's a connection (laughs) there between variegation and photosynthesis, right? Yeah, definitely. And it's if a plant just has structure variegation, like those studies, they've actually come out and they're like, whoa, photosynthesis was not impacted. And I think it's because it was just structure. It wasn't pigment. So definitely curious. I don't know off the top of my head now, but like if they have both though, would it be impacted or is it like a little bit, but not enough to cause concern for the plant? Right. And like, you know, again, it's hexastylus growing in shaded environments. It might just have Mm -hmm. super efficient photosynthetic process. This is showing my lack of physiological background. No, you're good. I'm learning (laughs) as well because I I was not originally a plant physiologist. (laughs) Yeah, that's it's a it's a steep learning curve. I'm sure to get in and be like, oh, I have to like run this whole project for myself. (laughs) Yeah. And when it's your data, you feel that anxiety, I'm sure. Yeah. But we're we're working through it. I'm learning things. So yeah. that's that's all that matters. Yeah, exactly. And you're you're growing as a scientist and as a person and mm-hmm. and I'm hopefully uh loving plants still <laughs> along the way. I know. I still do. I still take a bunch of pictures out in the field. I will always stop and take a picture <laughs> Good. of something. Good. I it hurts when you see the person that's just like, no, power through and you're like, Oh, you've lost your joy. <laughs> yeah. So how do you go about because variegation is as interesting and as beautiful as it can be, it, it does seem like it varies. And obviously within this species, it varies a lot. So how do you go about sort of trying to even 
classify the amount of variation? Is it like put it on a, a scanner and just try to figure out ratio of how much of the leaf is and isn't? Or is there some standardized process for this? Because this is, again, I think out of the realm of what most people are thinking about when it comes to variegation and, and the variety of possible ways it can happen. Yeah. So with my species, at least, I am doing exactly what you said. I'm pretty much quantifying how much of the leaf is variegated. So you have your plants that are just green completely. They are not brave. And you have your ones that are. And then within them, there's a difference in the area. So I use image analysis where I take these pictures of the leaf I took from a plant, sorry, plant, texture ruler. <laughs> and then I use Photoshop where you can use something called image J. And mm. I pretty much just use those tools to be like, what's the total area of the leaf? And then you can pick different ways. But what I do is I calculate the area of the variegated. And then from that, I can subtract and get the area of the green. So that's what I do for mine. But there's this paper I saw a while ago where it classified, try to all the different types of like a variegation because you have your ones that follow the veins. You have your ones that are dots, some that are like, mm really weird patterns some that are on the margins the different shapes and whatever and it was a lot and i'm like that's cool um lots <laughs> of process they did a lot though but yeah. like it just also seeing all the pictures i'm like wow it's really crazy house plant and these have no idea they just have like 10 <laughs> <laughs> percent we've only scratched the surface yeah <laughs> It's, I mean, even as a specialist, you know, you are for all intents and purposes becoming an expert in your field, but then you read a paper like that and you go like, oh my God, like <laughs> if only I, even I am flabbergasted and you get those moments where you're like, I don't know about you, but my palms start to sweat. You're like, that was so much work. I can't imagine doing that much work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you've got the people to help, that's great. I mean, like for instance, the pictures I'm doing, I started out with 900 something because just like and I've, I've got to the 600s but I'm taking a break Ooh. this summer and school starts soon I'm taking a break good for you <laughs> but, good for you but yeah it's it's a lot so I mean of course when you're like working it's like oh god I, I want to leave by five but at the same time just thinking about it it's so beautiful because it's just a wonderful diversity of lives and it's it gets makes makes me at least keep working. Like I'm not gonna stop because there's a lot going on. No, that's really nice. Yeah, it's it's important to always take that step back and just remember that you're you're into this because you you're you like it and you are very charmed to be able to study such a beautiful little marvel of evolution. And, you know, even within the genus, it's so strange. I mean, the, you could ask so many questions just in that clade alone. And then when you kind of take like, another step back and look around what else is going on in the forest, I mean, whew, you've got a lifetime of work to, uh, you know, yeah. to, to kind of satiate your curiosity if you so choose. Definitely. Like, the clade, it's funny. I do really love Pekasize. I do. But if you've ever looked at the genus key you really have to take a ruler out you have to go out when they're flowering and i mean some of them are easy like the oldest one in the genus aerifolia that one's easy it's shaped like an air you can find that no problem but then there's other ones that they look similar there's like 
a couple other that have both a plain and variegated morph. There's some that are just plain. There's some that are just variegated. And it's just like, it's a hate love relationship, but it's mostly love for sure. It's mostly. (laughs) (laughs) You are so difficult. You're lucky. You're so interesting. Yes, it's very much that. (laughs) Yeah. And every time I feel like every couple of years, I'll go down to, you know, the Southern Appalachian region and talk with someone that, you know, is spending more time in that floor. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're about to name a new species. I'm like, stop it, please. (laughs) I can't keep up. This is so much. Yeah. It's like, should we do this? Reminds me of um, I was in a class that the topic was what is a species, of course brain hurt every time but oh, yeah that she's like should we should we make a new species you know let's think about this because it's like i'm already blown right now with what's already <laughs> in the genus yeah and plants just really challenge a lot of our long-held sort of assumptions that we grow up learning about in biology uh, especially when it comes to what the heck is a species and i was just having this conversation with someone the other day about this idea that you know as scientists we come in and we use this as a wonderful tool to help understand relationships but to think that like when we got here and started thinking about it that all species were neatly separated from each other and had hit down their own individual paths is so it's like demonstrating such a hubris it's like no evolution is ongoing and it's a process and of course we're catching some groups in the midst of it (laughs) yeah like i definitely view species very dynamic because we are here like as individuals for a short while and hopefully you know theirs keep going and maybe right. split up more or like merge back together it's very dynamic so i think it's part of the thing where it's like what is a species and you're just like awkward silence um <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though, because, you know, in biology, we spend time thinking about those things and try to avoid them when we're just, you know, having the casual hangouts. <laughs> but when you bring up topics like that and start to discuss, it, that's another really interesting sort of inroad to public discussion. Because, again, if you you know had a biology class that was about as far as you got in it, no judgment, obviously, everyone takes their own path. But maybe you're not thinking about that. And to be introduced to the fact that that is a legitimate debate that we are still having and can get Mm -hmm. people real angry and worked up around each other. That's one of those things that like, I think some you can send some people home with a lot of food for thought. (laughs) Yeah, definitely did enjoy that class, but they're definitely reading some papers like old wooden stuff I'm like my head hurts I got maybe one thing out of that paper I cannot contribute to this conversation today but I tried (laughs) (laughs) oh geez well at least you've got your beautiful little hexastylus there to work with (laughs) and you know where that one stands at this point but at this stage of the game and again I apologize if you haven't gotten this far with it yet but are, are you seeing at least hints of patterns maybe not statistical patterns but do you see some patterns in your just data collection and being out in the field that are giving you some ideas of what's going on with the variety of variegation patterns for this this wonderful little plant. So I have not yet analyzed or like peeked at my first year's data, um, the abiotic data at least, but mm. I did look at my herbivore data, which I simply went to these 20 populations and was counting how many of the green or plain morph and variegated morph showed signs of herbivory. 
And I haven't done it yet, but I'm also going to like quantify within that how much of the leaf was eaten. Mm-hmm. But what it looked like as far as just like who was eaten or not most frequently, it looked like it was a frequency dependent thing for bravery, in which case that means whatever was the most common morph in that population, that was the one that mm. was attacked the most. So that's one of those herbivore hypotheses of being the only one that's been positive that it's not so much a benefit to be one or the other. It's more of a like through time, it's beneficial to be green now because you're the rarer morph. Oh. But through time, it's like, oh, now you're the more common morph. So now it sucks to be green. So <laughs> that's the only thing I've seen right now, just looking at year one. I haven't looked at my light data yet or temperature, mm. leaf temperature data yet. So interested to see if i see anything yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm already picturing some wacky interaction plus but <laughs> the idea that this could be affecting herbivory in and of itself is pretty interesting and the fact that you can kind of see some patterns there and and now you mentioned that it could just be a frequency thing and so is that a matter of like okay I mean, we do it too as a as a species looking for food on the landscape is just you kind of get a search image. And so maybe herbivores, whatever the most common one is, that's the one that they're like, oh, this is food versus the non-common one, maybe not easily recognized. Yeah, exactly. That's what it looks like is going on. And especially with the species, what makes the herbivory thing even more interesting to look at is that the family it's in, I'm going to try and say it, Aris. No, I'm not going to try and say Okay. It. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but exercise. Um, the birth warts. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. they, they're secondary compounds. They're very toxic. Like they, it can be a carcinogen. Um, mm. I had a lovely, I love her. She's so crazy. <laughs> My insect ecology professor, she took a bite of one of the leaves and Ooh. her tongue was numb for a couple hours. What? It's just so funny because she's the one who told us, hey, this is some like, like what are so you why'd doing? you do it? <laughs> we believed you. <laughs> I know. But yes, so if you're listening out there, my species, it's a wild ginger. It's not the ginger we eat, obviously. <laughs> but so it's interesting, like whatever does eat this, it has to have some type of sequestering going on or maybe have a special relationship with it because not a lot of things can eat it. Hmm. And with this genus too, it's really an area of discovery for anyone because I have at least seen that slugs and snails are pests, but whenever I'm out, I've never seen it. We've seen like a snail on it before, then we bring it back to the lab and see if it eats it and it doesn't eat it. So I'm like, okay, maybe that's not the species of snail <laughs> that does. So we definitely even tried to be okay. Someone's eating it because we're seeing the damage in the field, but what is it? Yeah. So even that, just the question of does it have a herbivory purpose? If it's a specialist that can eat it, then I can maybe see, yeah, it doesn't matter which morph is here. I'm strong enough to eat this. So I'll just but yeah. yeah, it's just weird. It's uh, it's an area of discovery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and such cool natural history components of this as well. I mean, you're testing good, sound ecological and evolutionary theory, but you get to do a lot of really interesting natural history work. And I think the observations like that just go to show you how few solid observations there are for the natural history of most species. Yeah, 
definitely. I mean, I don't know where I'm like, what I'll do after I get my PhD because there's lots of paths I've been introduced to. I'm like, oh, those all sound great. But I'm like, <laughs> if I just wanted to just work on hexercise for the rest of my life, I could do it because yeah. there's a lot to like, look at. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, don't worry about that now, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that'll that'll come in time. But <laughs> so obviously this is ongoing, but you also have your hands in some other really fascinating work as well. And that scales up from the leaf to more of the direct uh, reproductive component. But within the context of this whole landscape of temperature and aridity and, you know, everything else that could complicate a data set and make it really noisy, but fun. Um, and so you've looked at floral color in the context of not only pollination, but climate change. And that was where I ended up finding your about your work in the first place was this this link. And it's even as a plant person, I wasn't like, I was like, oh, how? how? And then you start reading, you're like, oh, wow, so many layers here. So yes. let's, let's <laughs> jump into that. I mean, obviously, floral color matters for pollination, but it goes so much deeper. Mm -hmm. Again, I was like everyone else out there in this year, super smart, if you integrate a few, I was just like, <laughs> flower color is just for the pollinators that was the long time right that's what it's for but yeah it can also be in response to the climatic conditions that the hmm. plant is in so maybe it's like pollinators for some species aren't that important it's i'm in a super sunny spot right now so that's why i have white petals hmm. for instance that's fun to think about because we obviously can overheat if we're just you know laying out in the desert all day or you know even just exposed in a mild climate but you know flowers plants in general can't get up and move and so if you are having to have all of your tissues exposed there's got to be a level of protection because just like we can get sunburnt uh, a flower can overheat potentially damage. Mm -hmm. I mean, UV is pretty brutal no matter what walk of life you are, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Even thinking too, so you you know, you, there's some flowers that are closed where you have to like kill back the petals mm. to see, you know, the stigma and the anthers. And there are some that are the reproductive parts are wide open. So especially with those, it's like what color your petals are can actually help with the vitality of your pollen and of your ovules and stuff so wow. it is yeah the climate can sometimes be more important or equally as important or anything <laughs> the pollinator selection wow oh yeah all levels it could be somewhat yeah. heavy not oh geez yeah yeah and i mean really flowers at the end of the day or any reproductive structure non-angiosperm i'm sorry i don't mean to <laughs> <laughs> True, yeah 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 but reproductive parts are probably the most important because that is really the goal is to get that those genes into the next generation and so the selection pressures there are, i'm guessing are pretty darn strong and so you with some colleagues have been able to put together a lot of ideas and data sets to kind of get a grasp on how much say, a change in the local or regional climate can really impact. So where did that all sort of begin, I guess, if, if there is a beginning to that kind of thing? So with just working with my mentor, then again, like the RU, just I've already, before starting this project, knew that there are some plant situations in which the climate is the stronger selection factor on floor color. So... For instance, there is this study where we had a well-watered and then a drought condition, and 
the pigmented or like purple flowers did better in their drought condition and had better reproductive success than the white flowers and then mm. vice versa in the well-watered condition it was the white flowers that had better reproductive success than the pigmented so it was kind of like hey situational based if i'm experiencing droughts having more pigments which is like response to that stress can help me out um, so just having that knowledge of real-time experiments, we have herbariums, which are pretty much time capsules of plants, hmm. preserved plants. So you wanted to see since how those specimens work, they tell you like the date and time and location of the plants. And the collector will often tell you what the plant looked like, the color of it. And we have a bunch of different types of climate databases as well that date back to like 50s, 1800s, whatever. Wow. It's like, hey, let's put these <laughs> two old things together and see <laughs> if like we can see, you know, with climate change, are we also seeing a change in flower color in some polymorphic species? Wow. Okay, so shout out to Herbaria and Climate Dataset. I mean, yes. leveraging long-term data. Yes. yes, I cannot emphasize There's how great that there. is. There's <laughs> lots there. We can use them, not even if you're just a plant person. Like, you work with insects. We, we're cousins. You can <laughs> yeah. use Herbaria, too. We can work together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a project here that's been going on for... Uh, decades at least uh that yeah every time they go out to sample the plants they're sampling the insects as well and so you get to see these things and it just goes to show you that like you know year to year you might not have someone working on this stuff or it might be like oh do we really need all these cabinets or do we really need to like prioritize this room for just all mm -hmm. these pressed plant materials but th this is the key where like if someone were to just throw that out that is hundreds of years worth of data gone yeah. versus saying like okay maybe not today but tomorrow someone could come up with an idea and do really important science and, and that not only increases our knowledge of like what these plants are doing but can give us an indication of like what's going to happen moving into the future yeah, definitely. And I mean, one of my undergrad plant classes, we, it was Plants and Semantics, we actually carried on a plant press whenever like mm -hmm. semester on banks was to collect a bunch of plants. So even not just, hey, going to one, but you can actually contribute to someone's research on the line if you want to collect plants yourself and how to do it and add it to these herbaria. It's all good data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never really had thought about that until I worked in a place that had a pretty functional herbarium and the amount of people, just citizens, not botanists, just people that were like, yeah, I'd like to, I'm a truck driver and I stop at roadsides and, and whenever I see something cool, I'll press it. They'll just send that stuff in. And so yeah. you'll get someone's like, 30 year career worth of like driving around the United <laughs> States and you're like sweet thank you yeah exactly like I'm honestly gonna buy a little mini plant press off nice. of <laughs> nice Sierra's personal herbarium <laughs> yeah awesome and so thinking about you mentioned sort of drought conditions and pigmentation and a flower and I'm in my head going like how are these connected how could I possibly connect these these so like what pigments and why do you think if you didn't even you know I get it there might not be a mechanism there at this point but like what is the connection between these pigments and drought because sun makes sense but drought seems like a very sort of circuitous way to get at floral pigmentation. So I don't super know about the mechanism, but the pigment is anthocyanin and it is a very common pigment you see that's responsible for like your purples, 
blues sometimes maybe maybe not um <laughs> like your, yeah your pink your um pinks too it's kind of like the more anthocyanin you have of course the darker the pigment will be so okay. yeah i don't super know about mechanisms for making anthocyanin i know like flavanones is like a midpoint to that please hmm. don't like quote <laughs> me on that i told you but yeah i You're just safe. whatever yeah, whenever I read the studies about it, I don't, again, super know why, but that is usually the stress response is to produce anthocyanin, so produce those pink, purpley, violet pigments. It just is. If you have, well, not like related in this study, but phosphorus deficiency, that's something else that usually you will get an increase in anthocyanin, like so wow. the leaves will turn purple. I mean, We've all killed a plant, some type uh, yeah. of stress, maybe saw some purple <laughs> happening in there. So it just it's just um, one of the common plant stress responses that you can see. Wow. Yeah. I'm, uh, as you say that, I'm looking at one of my underwater plants over there. Going, oh, I'm sorry. Little <laughs> yeah, buddy. I have a couple. I'm just like, I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing to have how many years did you say worth of herbarium data to be able to start looking at these patterns? I believe the oldest one was uh, 1895. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of global or even regional climate, that is still relatively, you know, a lot can happen in longer periods of time, but still, I mean, we have done a lot to our atmosphere, to regional areas since then. And so even being able to detect strong enough statistical patterns to say like, no, we can we can make some conclusions here is is kind of alarming, but also from a scientific standpoint, pretty darn fascinating at the same time. So there's this like juggling like, oh, man, we're really we're really doing something here. But one thing <laughs> that I appreciate about your work and something I've seen you reiterate is, you know, change is good to sort of see and quantify, but it might not necessarily always be bad. There's almost a sense of like, no, this shows that there is some adaptation, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, other times I've talked about this study, it's like change does not mean it's bad. Just because we're seeing an increase in like collections of darker flowers, which should suggest that flowers are becoming darker, but doesn't mean it's bad, you know, before us humans and maybe after us, like the plants are going to continue to adapt, you know, some things may go extinct, but things are adapting. And likewise, you know, the pollinators, herbivores, they are adapting as well. So just because we see things changing around us doesn't point blank mean it's bad. It's just responding. Like if someone pinches you, you're going to respond to being <laughs> pinched. Like it's just responding to the stress. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, it's important to kind of reiterate that because, you know, it's really easy to make a clickbait headline or try to write up an article that really gets people fired up and, you know, good, get fired up because we are changing things oftentimes in negative ways. But yeah. as scientists, you know, especially as someone trying to understand the natural world, like that change is a constant. It's always going to happen. But questions like this and, and data like this, I mean, this is like where the jumping off point becomes so interesting to me because you can start thinking about, you know, okay, there's connections not only to pollinators, but temperature and drought and probably CO2 concentrations and ozone layer stuff. 
how much has that changed over time? I mean, flowering plants are relatively recent on the scene, but they've been around for tens of millions of years. I don't want to go too far back. But uh, yeah, I mean, just think of how much the earth has changed. And okay, we see fossils of some of this stuff, but we don't get color, you know, or at least most of the time you don't. There's a lot of ways this can kind of start to inform other forms of inquiry into this world. Yeah, definitely. Like, even from this study, someone could do like, then a real time experiment with like the species using like, okay, we're seeing these differences. Now let's look at real time reproduction, the places where the flowers are getting darker. Are they reproducing? They do they have like good reproductive success too, because, you know, you could have they can also have like lower reproductive success because the stress, but it's enough to keep them going, mm. you know? So definitely jumping point more things. There's always more things yeah. <laughs> can be done from it. But yeah, just using her BAM specimens are like really cool because I've seen some old ones, maybe like 50 or something years old where like the color is actually still there and you can wow. see it because Although a lot of the data comes from online herbaria, there were some where I had to go to like my school herbaria and actually look at it because it wasn't mm. in the online version and I could see the color still there. But then there are like really old ones or maybe just the state that the plant was pressed in, the color is mm. gone. But thank God the collector said the flowers are purple. <laughs> like, yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you, data collector. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Take good notes people <laughs> yeah oh my gosh and that was even one of the things we had to say in our thing that um some of the comments were ambiguous to where it's okay we know this plant is polymorphic but or the species but the way they wrote it it's like are you saying both of these colors are on separate plants or are you saying that mm. this one plant has more than color so of course you're looking up the stuff you weren't there back in like a 1960 they'd be yeah. like hey can you write this a little clear but <laughs> Yeah, still, the notes are still good, and people should definitely look to Herbaria if you can, or like just give a shout out, you know, like, hey, this is useful data you can use to enrich possibly your research, whatever you're doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's so good to have that reiterated time and time again because the stuff gets forgotten every couple of years, and then it, you know, we threw it out or it burned, <laughs> you know, like nightmarish yeah. situations for, for data loss there, but. Even within, you know, looking closer at the plants themselves, I mean, this is also interesting is the fact that you keep saying polymorphic species. So some plants are pretty steadfast about what color their flowers are going to turn out. I mean, I there's tiger lilies all around my neighborhood that are always orange and black. But yeah. you have worked with a species that can have variation, which is interesting in and of itself. So, A, what species is this? And, you know, B, thinking about it from a polymorphic standpoint, I mean, there's a lot of questions. Obviously, that's what you're trying to aim at. But, like, variation in color flower within a species, within poly populations or across regions. I mean, jeez. Yeah, it's crazy. Because I was thinking about that earlier. Why do some species have a propensity I guess I can say that to be polymorphic where others are like, no, I am pink all of the time. No matter where you put me, I'm not changing. I refuse. <laughs> yeah. Weird. I mean, maybe obviously someone has to be looking at, but it's definitely, it's cool to think about that summer can be seen in different forms and some aren't that variable. Yeah. And out of the group, I mean, were you looking at a, a, a selection of plants or were there particular species that really jumped out for this work in particular? So it was a 
kind of pretty random selection. I mean, I had a field guy just looking through casually because it's usually, um, so the polymorphism, because we're working with the anthocyanin and pigment, it's usually like your whites to pinks and purples. That was the only mm. color polymorphism I was looking at. So just, look, I looked through my field guide. I looked through articles just saying, like, okay, what are some, you know, commonly studied ones? Some that my advisor just happened to know. So it was very random. Hmm. I think across 12 different families huh. we had. Wow. Yeah, so very random to seeing like who's polymorphic. <laughs> and then also going through their bear records, also seeing kind of who has enough to work with because there were a couple of that. There's only like 10 <laughs> accession things. I, yeah. I need a little more than that. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, data availability. I didn't even thought about that level of worrying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So again, shout out. If you want to learn how to press a plant and add it to the collection, can have more data points. Do it. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, it's a random subset. And I'm sure it's by no means limited to the species you were able to get enough data on. And so think of every place in the world where this could be playing out across a single continent, let alone all of the continents and all of the possible data sets and and different avenues you can take to try to study this stuff. And it just goes to show you that like, you're working on a big sort of evolutionary ecological theory here, but within that theory, how many different hypotheses are there? (laughs) Definitely, because we had a species effect in stats that's as deep in the stats I'll go, but not every species is doing the same thing. And like I said about, you know, worldwide, like I only looked at North America, what's going on (laughs) in Asia? Maybe it's the complete opposite. Right. What's going on in Australia? So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, again, no matter where you end up, there's always questions to be asked moving forward with Mm -hmm. this kind of research. So with that in mind, I mean, you're obviously working through grad school. I commend you for even taking the time to talk with us about all this stuff today. And (laughs) kudos, you said you're taking a little bit of a break because it is summer. Uh, So (laughs) nice. But where do you see yourself going with this and where, you know, obviously you want to get the PhD under your belt and be done with it, but you want to keep going on with research or do you see yourself kind of fitting in in other ways? Or is that something that, you know, as as things change and happen, you're just open to all the possibilities? (laughs) Well, I definitely like research. So like, even before going to grad school, do I start with master's or just jump in PhD? I was like, I know I like research. Mm-hmm. I know I like that. So whatever I do, if it's staying in academia, because I, I do actually like teaching, surprisingly, or um, doing more of an industry type thing, because I just went to a little plant physiology workshop in Colorado. Nice. Hashtag, or, the hatch is going but like yay this says if any of you are listening i told them but um i just learned about even other avenues i can do if i don't want to do academia but it's still research centered so i mean as of right now after i graduate the plan is to maybe (laughs) still do academia but i think as long as i'm doing research and it has I have opportunities for some outreach components to just talk to people and continue to hype people you know, get into plants and be like, hey, you already like plants. Let me help you like plants even more. I think I'd be fine. With Come with me. I have things yes. to show you. <laughs> We're going on an adventure. Nice. 
Now that's great. And it's really refreshing to hear someone that both loves research and loves teaching wanting to go to it because they, unfortunately, a lot of times you do see people that kind of fell into it and thought they wanted it, but don't. And then, you know, down the line, a lot of things end up suffering, whether that's just mental health or literally everyone there trying to get quote unquote excited about something. So it's nice to hear that, you know, these are things that are passionate. You know that, which is like nine tenths of the battle <laughs> and pursuing it. But yeah, I mean, you're doing it in such an incredible system too. Yeah, thanks. Like definitely, I mean, being an academic Twitter, you got to respect everyone's choices to continue or stay because you got to listen yeah. to like yourself. I mean, when some interested people were like um, wanting to know for joining our lab, should I do a PhD? Should I take a break? Should I keep going? I always feel like, well, this is what I did, but you have to take time and like be with yourself and like, what do you want to do? Because what I did might not be good for you. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as with anything, there's like checkpoints you have to hit eventually, but there's no recipe and it's not a race. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's not a race. Yeah. Because it can be a slog if you're not into it. So it's like, yeah, listen to yourself a little bit and just, uh, I always say, like, what's your passion and follow that because at some level you will find a way to kind of insert yourself to some degree in what you really, really love because that's how you meet people and make connections and all that. So good for you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, obviously there's so many exciting things that are going to be coming out of your research and if people want to kind of keep tabs on what you're doing learn more about what you have going on what are some of the best ways to learn more about your work and reach out well i guess following my twitter is one thing that's people actually like yeah i do have a twitter so i guess i don't remember my like handle that's okay because i will put (laughs) it in the show notes so just send me the link everyone can go look at the show notes if they want to follow you on twitter (laughs) there's that and I guess like I think my advisor, Dr. Koski, I mean, I'm up there, he probably has some stuff about me. So <laughs> I think it's, it's a website. I feel like, I don't know, it's almost an imposter syndrome thing where like, should I make a website? I like artistic things like that, but it's like, I'd have to upkeep the website <laughs> though. So I don't know, in time, maybe I'll make a website. But right now I think just Twitter and then like my advisor's website, well, Dr. You're incredible. Do not feel like an imposter. We all feel that way, but be proud of yourself. Be proud of the work that you've done because it's incredible and you're really carving out an important piece of an ecological puzzle. I get it. Websites are a pain in the butt to keep up on. So (laughs) no judgment there, but awesome. At any point you want to send me links via email, I will put them up so that people can go to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and navigate to your episode to find them. You don't have to remember them. Or I always say, don't pull over your car or stop running. Whatever it is you're doing, stop. Keep gardening. (laughs) You can find the links really easily. But uh, Sierra, this has been really interesting really opening people's eyes to, you know, it's not just about the pollinators. Pollinators are important. They are a selection pressure, but there's so much more there. And you're working with some pretty remarkable plants in the process. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us about it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've followed you for a bit on Instagram. And so like, oh, thank you. I'm like, wait, you have a podcast? Just <laughs> me being slow and not looking more. And Quite like, all right. I need to start. I need to start listening to this because I already <laughs> follow you. Thank you. No, I'm, I'm always kind of amused when that happens because there's so many, you know, social media is what it is. It's so compartmentalized and people are like, I don't listen, but I like, I'm like, I don't care. It's fine. Like it, I'm happy <laughs> to engage and I'm happy that, you know, people find the content interesting. So, and it's only as good as people like you to be able to like share their research and take the time to talk with us so thank you again i really appreciate it no problem and thank you again of course well hang in there stay healthy and happy botanizing tell the hexastylus i said hi (laughs) definitely cheers 
All right, that was awesome. Such an interesting line of research. I hope you will look upon all of the variation and flower and leaf color and patterns with newfound curiosity and appreciation. I thank Sierra for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I can't wait to see all of the wonderful things that are going to come out of her research. All of the links available are in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com, as well as links for things like Patreon, which can help support the show and make sure it has a future, our merchandise page, my book, In Defense of Plants, and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, as well as all of the other relevant information you need each week. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and navigate to the episode of interest. Speaking of supporting the show, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Suzanne because they went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level, which is the maximum amount you can commit to ensuring the show has a future. Thank you, Suzanne. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and tell your friends. Word of mouth is how podcasts spread. But otherwise, hang in there, stay healthy, get outside if you can, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.